Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's show is featuring Raphael Cosman. He is the co-founder and CEO of Trust Token. We talked about how they started Trust Token, which was a completely separate business idea that was then pivoted in 2017 to launch Trust USD, uh, which now has over a billion dollar market cap. The company Trust Token has raised $34 million with 80 employees listed. They have Trust TrueFi. TrueFi is a DeFi uh, lending platform, a protocol. Uh, Raphael shared screen. He showed us Compound. We talked about Aave, what exists now in DeFi, and what uh, TrueFi is doing differently. We talked about credit bureaus, where crypto is going. Uh, overall, just a very, very thoughtful individual. And I deeply enjoyed this conversation. I learned a ton, and I hope you do as well. I bring you Raphael Cosman. All right, Raphael, we are live. Uh, I think hey. that was the most exciting pre-show conversation I've had in a long time. So I'm really excited to chat with you. Uh, you are working on a really exciting project. Uh, you've got an awesome background. And why don't we kick it off with that? You run Trust Token, which you've started in 20, 2015. Is that right? Exactly. Uh, 2016. 2015. Yeah. Uh, Trust Token has a series of products underneath it. Uh, a huge part of that is the stable currencies that you built USD, Canada, uh, Hong Kong, et cetera. I'd love to hear from you what the early strategy was? Like when you started the company, what was the spark? What got you really excited about jumping into this world for which you spent many years and I'm sure we'll spend many more? Totally. But um, Mike, I'm going to give you the real startup story, okay? Not the varnished version. Please do. So, um, so I, I graduated Stanford Computer Science 2015. Um, I'd been passionate about programming and engineering for many, many years. And um, my the first major job after college was working at Google doing AI research um, and then decided to leave Google and start a startup because I just thought, you know, if you're young, early in your career, you know, doing a startup can be a great way to build skills, acquire resources, you know, learn a ton. And if you fail, you don't have much to lose. You don't have a family or kids and you can always go and get a, a more cushy job somewhere with a, a little bit more job security. And you got the opportunity for massive upside if you work hard and uh, are, are successful and, of course, get some luck, too. Um, so 
uh, end of 2015, um, beginning of 2016, started this company. When it started, it wasn't a crypto company at all. Can you guess what it was, Mike? I, I don't know. Okay, so pretty, it's pretty random. We started out doing software for estate planning. Um, so oh. software to help people make their wills and trusts. And we actually chose it because we thought, this is my former co-founder and I, um, we thought, let's go and build software in the dustiest, oldest industry that we can find where there won't be other software players and we'll be able to make a big dent. That was our logic at the time. So we researched dozens and dozens of different industries. We thought this is a good one. You know, estate planning is going to be a good spot. So we were about a year into that and this is just finished our product. We're starting to make our first revenue. And so this was getting into 2017. Crypto was exploding. And we said, oh my gosh, there are such huge opportunities here in crypto. Uh, we may want to pivot the company. And we did. And so that's how we ended up with a crypto company. So the company is a little bit older. The crypto version of the company really started in 2017. With so I take it things things weren't taking off in the previous model? You know, they were they were going a little slow. And also there were some things about the industry that we really didn't like. Like there was a competitor that actually came into the estate planning software industry just as we were deciding to leave it that was basically offering a free product, which is never a good sign. And the idea, the, the idea was very clever. They said, they're going to offer a free product because uh, life insurance is such a good product to sell. It's such a profitable product to sell in the United States, the way that our, our markets work, that you can basically give away f estate planning, you know, basic estate planning services for free and then just sell life insurance to people and that pays for everything. It's interesting. So that was one of those things where we were like, oh my gosh, I think we missed the, I think we, we missed the business model here and I think we're going to get toasted. It's interesting. I had a, as a side note, I had a very similar experience in my first startup in 2013. We built yeah. a point of sale software and we were selling subscriptions to this software that like small apparel stores could use to run their businesses and sell things online and in, in person. <clears throat> and then a company came in the space and gave away the software and we couldn't figure out how, what their model was. And eventually they, I'm guessing the, the data, market. data, no. No, no, no. Payment what processing. Oh, yeah. So yeah. what Stripe does, you know, they take mm. a percentage of the transactions. So they were a merchant acquirer. They had a bank partnership and they were running their own payment processing. So that ended up being the model that works, which is kind of interesting, the analogy there, right. or the parallels. You know, there's a lot of that in business. You know, you just, you see the same thing, but in a new way, the twist on the business model, and that's what can give a certain company an edge. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is true in crypto as well. I think if you look at crypto, people don't people don't pay for the software, and the competition now and the protocols and the blockchain layers. Uh, there, we could talk more about this, but there's so many Trojan horses where you're giving away all of this, like airdrops, and you're incentivizing people to join, and then you have some back end way of uh, extracting value either as a protocol or a company. I will say that sometimes there isn't a back-end way of extracting value as a protocol or a company. And some of these things never become profitable and never really have a path to profitability. And that is one of the struggles that the crypto industry faces, right? Is um, 
you know, how, how can we build things that have sustainable business models in a world where anyone can fork your code because the code is open source in the blockchain. Mm. And, and that's a re- that's a real issue that a lot of, a lot of protocols are having to face right now. Mm. Did you have a clear model in mind when you started the stable currency? Let me ask you this. Was that, was that the first product you launched the stable currency? Yeah. So stable coins was, were the first products that we launched in crypto. So we launched True USD, which is a US dollar backed stable coin. Now it has over a billion True USD in circulation. We then launched through British pound, Hong Kong dollar, Canadian dollar, and Australian dollars. So now five global stable coins. And those all use a very simple model for the product and for the business where the token is backed one for one with actual, in the case of True USD, US dollars sitting with a bank. And with British pounds, back one for one with actual British pounds sitting with a bank and so on. So very, very simple model. Since since then, we've had a lot of algorithmic stable coins that have come out, as I'm sure you've seen, including things like Luna, which very recently had a major disaster, which has you know, still been shaking the entire crypto world. So we are seeing these different models for stable coins come out, but the fiat-backed model that TreeUSD really pioneered is probably the most dominant model today and we still think is one of the most solid if you have to choose a Mm. place to put your money and it provides the foundation for a lot of how DeFi works so a lot of protocols like compound and ave and trufi which is our company's main product today you know a lot of these modern DeFi protocols are really built on the backs of solid stable coins like true usd usdc and others is there any significant difference in the structure of the stable coins? I mean, are they basically split across this model, which you described, where you have a regulated bank, the money is stored in the bank, and then you have a digital representation on chain for the currency? This would be Tether, TrueUSD, USDC, etc. And then you have algorithmic stable coins, which is a completely separate endeavor. Is, is there any other, is that the right way to describe the stablecoin market between those two approaches? Yeah, I would I would add a third approach. I guess the I I would really say that there's a spectrum and with three main points. So there's fiat backed stablecoins like True USD and USDC on the one side. Um then there's ones like let's say there's one like Tether of a little bit on the spectrum that are claim to be fiat backed, but don't necessarily have the same level of auditing and regulation as uh, something like a USDC or a true USD. Um, you've got things that are on the complete opposite of the spectrum. You have things that are completely algorithmic and may not be backed by anything at all. And then you have this very interesting point at, in the middle of the spectrum where Maker and Frax sit, if you're familiar with those products. Mm-hmm. And these are backed by crypto but they are over collateralized and in some cases heavily over collateralized with crypto assets. And so depending on the crypto assets and the level of over collateralization, they have different levels of security for holders of the token. So I think that Maker and their stablecoin DAI is one of the best examples of this and is a really important player in the crypto space. It's, it's one of the it's uh, one of the most important projects to watch today. And I'm looking it up right now. Let's see. I mean, their their governance token maker is trading at a billion dollar market cap, even with this market crash that we're in. And DAI 
what's the market cap? Oh, die 1.0. Let's see, die 2.0. What's the what's the market cap of that? I think last time I checked, it was it was in the tens of billions. Um, but I have to look again. But it's just it's so widely used in DeFi and elsewhere. So so I, it's it's complex, and I think there's room for innovation. I think that this this spot in the middle is quite interesting with crypto backed. Stable coins, I think fiat-backed stable coins are very, very solid and will continue to exist. I'm, I'm very concerned about the purely algorithmic ones, and I don't think that they make a lot of financial sense. So, I, so if I, as a founder or investor or trader, I would generally stay away from those. But I do think that in this whole range, there's, there's a lot of innovation that could still happen. So, if you're someone who's, who's thinking about, you know, new projects to invest in, new projects you could start with in crypto. I do think there are a lot of interesting ideas for how you can keep stable coins stable that can that can make financial sense and be solid invest solid investments uh, for token holders. Mm. What do you think about the pushback that stable coins are only stable are only as stable as the currency in which they're backed by? So the U.S. dollar has is going through incredibly high inflation. It's the president's number one objective. He's stated to address inflation. It could run away. I mean, it, it could turn into a Venezuela type situation or Argentina where mm. it's like every year you have half as much value in the currency itself. Stable coins wouldn't protect against that. Do you view some kind of meshing of algorithmic or maybe a, a combination of buy five or 10 different global currencies uh, to prevent that? Would that make sense as a as a way to prevent that? It's a good question. So, okay, there's a lot in there. And that, and Mike, this is starting to get to um, some of the core questions about what crypto is really about and what its role in the world is. So at some level, you know, people used to trade using gold and silver and other things that, were not valuable by fiat, not valuable because the government says so, um, but valuable largely because of scarcity. There's only so much gold in the world. There's only, only so much silver in the world. A lot of people like it. It has some uses. Um, it's, it's fundamentally scarce. And that's what people would use. Now, US dollars, they're not fundamentally scarce. They're scarce because the government makes sure that other people don't print them. And the government can print as much as they want. So I think it is a fundamental issue with fiat currencies, a very fundamental issue with all fiat currencies that uh, there's someone who can print them, it's just not you. And you really have to think, do you want to be a large holder of the thing that somebody can print, it's just not you? Part of the idea of Bitcoin, which really got a lot of our industry started, is that, okay, well, if I can't print it, then let's have something that nobody can print. You know what I mean? And that way, it, that way it can be volatile. It can go up, it can go down, but it's not going to be going down because there's someone sitting there mashing the print button. It's going to be going down because of market forces. How many people are there who want to buy Bitcoin for dollars? And how many people are there who want to sell Bitcoin for dollars? And that will determine the price of a Bitcoin today, but not because someone is printing more than 21 million Bitcoins, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. You can, you can bet on your life that that is, that that is going to be the case. Now, when you talk about stable coins, it's interesting because they're usually pegged to something like the US dollar. And the US dollar is inflating and the US dollar can be printed arbitrarily by the US government. And so when you hold a stable coin, 
you know, if it's a if it's a very solid stable coin like a true USD or a USDC, then you are take you're absolutely taking that risk and you are exposed to just as much inflation risk as any other US dollar holder. And so the main reason to hold that stable coin, it's really a tokenized form of a US dollar. Here we've taken a real world asset and we've used blockchain technology to bring it into cryptocurrency form. And the purpose of that is that you can move it faster and more cheaply all around the world and that you can use it in all kinds of new applications such as decentralized finance that you haven't used it before. And I hope we're gonna talk more about decentralized finance shortly. Um, But that's really the purpose. It doesn't help you to avoid inflation from the US dollar. And if you hold a basket of different fiat currencies, then you're still just exposed to inflation from a bunch of different governments printing those currencies. That hasn't necessarily helped you very much. You know, maybe you have have less noise in that system because you're averaging across several different things. But uh, it's not it, it's not it doesn't seem to me like it's that much of a fundamental benefit. And it might be worth really holding a different asset or, you know, designing a, st- a stable coin that instead of being pegged to the dollar, maybe is pegged to something else. You could imagine trying to peg a stable coin to the value of a $2,020 so that even in 2022, when dollars are worth less, that this stable coin would now be worth, you know, what a $2,020, the buying power of a $2,020 not the mm. lower buying power that a $2022 has. So that's an interesting idea. Can you, you know, can you do that technically? Can you do that in a way that's going to make financial sense and is not going to break down? Well, it's not trivial. So these are these are all very interesting questions and the sorts of things that, you know, smart companies and smart founders are exploring. Let me ask you this. When you started the first, when you started uh, True USD, you, yeah. I'm sure, learned a lot on how to, like, what banking partner are you going to use? Do you have more than one? Does that bank, can that bank lend out that money? How do you get audited? How do you digitally represent the dollars that are in the bank? By this point, I imagine you have a playbook where you're going to Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, and you're you're replicating this process. Is the, is that a, was that a massive mountain? You know, from the, from my perspective, it's difficult to assess how much work went into building that product, but Mm. coming out of this now, having built five of these, do you feel like you've just climbed Mount Everest five times or is this relatively simple as far as company building goes? I'm just curious what's happening underneath the hood on these. Oh, it was so much easier the second through fifth time. The yeah. first time was by far the most difficult. So when we launched True USD in 2017, the only other stable coin, the only major stable coin on the market was Tether. There was no USDC, there was no GUSD, HUSD, BUSD, any of these guys. Those all came well after True USD. And we really pioneered that core model you know, work with a legit banking partner. And our first banking partner was Prime Trust in Nevada. We've since added Silvergate, that's right here in San Diego, actually right in my backyard. Um, Signature Bank, that's also here in the US. We have um, First Digital Trust in Hong Kong that services a lot of our Asian uh, users that are purchasing and redeeming from Asia so we can get them, you know, faster wire times. So now we have a whole network of banks and we, we, have the capital distributed through several different banking partners. Um, but at the time, it was just Prime Trust. And it's a very simple model, if you think about it. 
but it does require working with a bank, connecting it to the blockchain, you know, doing some some things at the time were not obvious. And you know, the way it works is you can take your bank account. If you might want to purchase some true USD, you know, you would send in, let's say, a twenty thousand dollar bank wire, and then we would mint for you twenty thousand true USD that are now fully backed because we got that money in the bank. And then, you know, you could send that to people and so on. At any point, someone could take ten twenty thousand true USD, send it to us, it would get burned, destroyed, you know, taken out of circulation, and then we would send them out a twenty thousand dollar wire. So the core model is we always keep you know, the number of true USD in circulation and the number of US dollars in that bank account matching one for one. So once we had that model built out, once we had you know our whole purchase and redemption process built out, it became much easier to launch these additional products because it was really just the same model, but just a different currency. And so just making sure that we had the multi-currency accounts, that we had the right banking partners for those, that we could you know send and receive those wires, it was just working out some kinks, but it was much, much easier. And nowadays, it's a very well understood model. And there are companies that will help you spin one up, you know, very quickly. Yeah, I imagine the key part there is having the API from the bank or having some notification to to, to confirm that this is this wire transfer went through. Exactly. Yes. So the bank, the banks tell us that and then our systems will perform the actual mint. But, you know, Mike, a lot of the work on the stablecoin side since then has been around how can we take the trust, the trust in stablecoins to a whole new level? So I'll tell you what we did. We worked with a third-party auditor, a top 25 U.S. accounting firm called Armanino. And what we did was we set up, we set them up so that they could actually inspect the funds in the banks in real time, 24-7. And they ch- they actually run their own Ethereum nodes and their own nodes for the other blockchains that we're on. And they actually verify 24-7 around the clock that the funds, the, the tokens on the blockchain are fully backed by funds in the bank account. And that's not even going through our systems whatsoever. That's directly them connecting to our banking partners. So you're not even, you're not trusting me, you're not trusting my company that those, that those uh, tokens are fully backed. You are trusting this third-party auditor that's a very legit, uh, auditing firm. Then we took that to the next level and we recently worked with Chainlink, who's a major provider of oracles, so bringing data on chain, to build a system where we take that data about the collateralization of these stable coins, we actually put it on chain in real time, 24-7, such that decentralized finance applications and other apps that are running directly on the blockchain can actually inspect those uh, those data feeds and see that the tokens that they're using are fully backed. And if there ever was an issue, they could have a circuit breaker that basically says, okay, well, we're going to pause trading or pause lending of a certain token um, because we may have a, a question about its collateralization status. So that gives a new level of trust for those applications. And then what we actually, what we recently announced at Permissionless in Florida, just maybe a month ago, was a direct integration to the stablecoin smart contract such that now we're actually making it such that it's going to be impossible for the smart contracts to even mint any stablecoin that is not fully backed according to the third-party auditor and the decentralized Oracle network. So that way, it's truly a system of checks and balances to guarantee for users that if you're holding a true USD, you know as damn sure as you can possibly know that it is backed by an actual dollar sitting in an actual bank. 
If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Mm. And I also saw about a month ago, you guys launched or announced the move to full decentralization. Uh, the three parts that stood out to me, launch of the on-chain governance, the foundation to support the DAO, and the off-chain uh, governance board. Ha- ha- Absolutely. Retrufi, yeah. Have you, do you feel that you've more or less followed, more or less followed the standard approach to this move to decentralization, start LLC or private company, raise money, use that dev team to build out the the protocol, expand that, maybe incentivize people to use it, that grows, and then you kind of whittle down the uh, for the the traditional entity as you expand the decentralization of the protocol. Has there, ha, do you feel that that's taken a fairly linear approach or have there been really challenging parts? You know, um, there have definitely been some challenging parts. And I would say, I don't think that there's any playbook for these things. Um, but and, and there's a bunch of things that we're doing that are similar and a bunch of things that we're doing that are different than other companies. And, and, and there's some reasons why. But um, before we dive into that, let's, let's take a step back. And because um, this is about TrueFi, which is our protocol for being able to do unsecured lending on the blockchain. And let me, let me get into what that is and how that works. Mm. So um, we've talked a little bit about DeFi, decentralized finance, which is basically about taking the things that traditional financial institutions do and doing them on the blockchain in a more efficient and more transparent manner. So probably if we look at, you know, pioneers in DeFi, one of the biggest names that folks have probably heard about is Compound. I'm sure you've... Uh, you talked about Compound Mike on some at some point in this podcast. Yeah, uh, I've had Ave, the founder of Ave, on, and Compound's on the list. But yeah, Compound Ave seem to be the two largest. There may be others that I don't use or know about, but yeah, totally. They're they're both huge, huge players. Okay, so 
Um, let me talk about compound just because it's one of the first and actually simplest to explain. And then I can explain TrueFi and what we do a bit differently. So let me share, let me share my screen actually so that people can see if they haven't already. Can you see my screen all right? Um, it's giving me the little loading. I think it's coming up. We, oh, I love that we're doing this, by the way. Share screen. We don't do the, enough share screens. Oh, there it is. Great. Great. Market overview. Yeah, I mean, look, if we're talking about crypto, if we're talking yeah, about... Yeah, we got I mean, to do more share screens. Gotta see look, we got to not just share our screen, but I mean, for any of your listeners that are not actually putting money into DeFi protocols... I mean, that is the way to understand these things is you've got to actually experience it. So mm -hmm. highly recommend for anyone who is listening to this or viewing it, um, actually, actually get some stable coin, get $100, $200 of stable coin and start playing around with some of this stuff. Totally. Um, but Compound. Okay, so Compound is, is one of the major early protocols in DeFi, really pioneered a lot of what decentralized finance is today. And it is a protocol for doing over-collateralized lending on the blockchain. So here's what that means. You could take a hundred and, let's say $120 of Ether, put it with Compound, put it into the Compound smart contracts, and then you could borrow out $100 of USDC. That is one of the fiat-backed stablecoins. Or alternatively, you could put in $120 of USDC and you could borrow $100 of Ether you can do, so it's essentially over-collateralized lending. Compound is willing to give you a loan. In fact, it's willing to give anyone a loan. Literally any Ethereum address in the entire world could go to Compound and get a loan, but the catch is you have to put up collateral and it's always more than 100% collateral. Sometimes it's 120%, sometimes it's 150%. We can actually see um, here, so you know, collateral factor, 82%. So I think that means you can borrow uh, about 82 cents for every dollar of ether that you put in. So different collateral factors, different assets, of course. Um, but this is an interesting idea because this is basically saying, hey, there's this, there's this major thing you might want to do, which is essentially like margin lending. It's, it's over collateralized lending against various crypto assets that you have. And instead of getting a loan from a traditional institution or an exchange, you can go to this smart contract, which will actually give you a loan directly. And that's a really powerful idea. It is, it has a tremendous amount of transparency because you can, I mean, because it's a smart contract on the blockchain, you can literally see every loan that Compound has ever made since it was founded and the exact terms of those loans. If you think about, you know, I have, I usually keep my money with Wells Fargo, right? With Wells Fargo, you know, I have no idea what they're doing with my money. They're loaning it out to all kinds of different people at all kinds of different rates. Um, they're probably making a bunch of money on those, those loans. I'm certainly not. And I have almost no transparency about what's happening with my money in Compound as with other DeFi protocols. It's an insane level of transparency where you can literally go on the blockchain and you can watch in real time every single loan that a protocol like this is making 24-7 and the exact terms of those loans, the exact status of every single piece of collateral that it's holding. So that's a really powerful idea. That's really part of the core of how DeFi works and what makes it interesting. So with me so mm -hmm. far? Yeah. I, uh, tell me, what would be the primary use cases of someone be wanting to put up more collateral than their loan is? Especially, ah, good yeah. question. That's right. And it doesn't really... 
it doesn't really help expand the amount of capital you have, right? Because you're putting up $120 to borrow 100, right? So the primary use case is number one, if you want to get leverage on crypto assets, you could, let's say I want to lever up on Ether, I could take my $120 of Ether, deposit it in Compound, borrow $100 of stable coin, use that to buy more Ether, and now I am levered up on my Ether position. Alternatively, you could also short crypto assets. If I wanted to short Ether, then I could actually put up USDC as collateral, borrow Ether from Compound, and sell that Ether into the market. That's why it's called short selling. You've borrowed an asset and then sold the asset. You're now short Ether. Now, if Ether goes down in value, you will actually make money. So you can both lever and short using Compound. And the third major use case I would add is if you just want to be able to get some liquidity on a crypto asset without having to sell that crypto asset because you still like the investment, you like the exposure, Compound could work for that. So if I'm a big, I'm a big Ether whale or a Bitcoin whale, I could put my capital with Compound. I can borrow against it, pay my rent, buy lunch for my girlfriend, and I don't have to sell any of my Ether, I'm just borrowing against my Ether. And if Ether continues to go up, then that might have been a better move than selling my Ether at a low price. Now, that is also a riskier move because if Ether goes down, this could do quite poorly for you and it might have been better to sell some of your Ether. So I'm not advising this as a trading strategy or as an investment strategy, but it is definitely something that people do with Compound, Aave, and many other over collateralized lending protocols. One more quick question. Do you feel another use case is that when you sell a, if you sell Ether, sell Bitcoin, make a trade, I, I, I forget the details on this, but I, I think that that's viewed as a taxable event. So if you've Absolutely. gained, uh, therefore it wouldn't be considered a taxable event if you just lend against it. Because you're Absolutely. Yes, yeah. yeah, so if you've made a lot of money because your Ether or Bitcoin has gone up massively, the moment you sell any of that, that's a taxable event, you might pay, if it's short-term capital gains, you might, between state and federal tax, pay up to 50% or even more than 50% of those profits directly to Uncle Sam. If you live here in the United States, if you live in other countries, of course, it's different, some higher, some lower. Um, that can be an unpleasant experience, losing half of your gains. And so a lot of people may want to borrow against that asset instead. Sometimes that can make financial sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, another another example of where that, that might in particular make sense is if you have something that is that's appreciated a lot, but is still, uh, you've held for under a year. So it would be a short-term capital gain. But the moment you cross that one-year mark, then here in the United States, that becomes a long-term capital gain and it gets a much more friendly tax treatment. So if you had an asset that's appreciated and you're at the 10-month market, 10-month mark, it might make a lot more sense to borrow against that asset and then sell it in two or three months once it becomes a long-term capital gain as opposed to selling it today and eating that very painful 50%, sometimes 50% plus tax. Mm. Although there's still so much confusion in the general public that I pick up on about what is taxable if you make interest on your crypto mm. from some C5, if you're using Nexo, uh, Nexo or Celsius and they pay you, is that taxable? Or if you're earning it on DeFi, is that is that taxable income? There's, I'm sure at this point, totally. I think the taxes are at least pretty clear on what you should do. Uh, maybe there's some kind of grace period that 
the government has. I, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you have any, obviously we should just say people should do their own, you know, talk to your accountant, talk to your accountant, right? Talk to your CPA. Yeah. But Mike, I will say, you know, most of that stuff is taxable. Um, there's, there's what is taxable under law and there's what people actually do because a lot of stuff in crypto is anonymous. And so some people choose not to pay their taxes and that's their decision. Um, and I think the IRS is very aware of this and knows that they are, or, that they are owed, uh, something like tens or maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars of capital gains from the appreciation of Bitcoin and Ethereum, especially. And I think that they are actively looking to collect. So uh, yeah. there is there's more regulation coming into crypto on all different fronts, including uh, including on the taxation side, folks starting to you know want more reporting and making sure that the government can collect their money. So for better or for worse, that I think is the direction that things are going in. Yeah, and it's it's totally. I mean, it's almost like a regular regulator's uh, dream to have crypto is just completely transparent and available for everyone. It's like the opposite of the banking system in a way where everything is available. So you can look back in history and see what everyone did once you have the trace of money. And I'm sure that the industry for software to help governments do this will beefen up. That's where I think oh, people yeah. have a little bit of a bias where they think, oh, the government's uh-huh. not gonna be able to figure this out. I'm, making, I'm doing this clever move. Like, uh-huh. You know, they will. They certainly will. So I, I think they're working smart. on it. Yeah, they're working on it. But <clears throat> you, you brought up like, Compound. Mm-hmm. I, I will say briefly before, before we go back to Compound, I just want to say, you know, I think crypto both is and isn't a regulator's dream. It's great for regulators that everything is transparent on chain. The issue for them is that everything is pseudonymous. They can see that address 0x123 has made $10 million of capital gains and so owes state and federal governments $5 million in taxes. But uh, who is address 0x123? Whom do they actually collect from? It's very unclear. And they are, I'm sure, working on that problem. And so they probably have some very smart software companies that are uh, trying to de-anonymize some of those addresses. Yeah, you know, th- there was a there's a good quote that I'm going to butcher, but I'll attempt by a oh God, it was by uh, one of the pres. I'll, I'll include it in the show notes. But I think it was by an, an ex US president who said, uh, every citizen has a responsibility to pay to follow all the tax rules but uh-huh. is fully with it. It's there. You're no less patriotic if you follow those tax rules in a way that incentivizes you the most. In other words, you don't have to pay the most tax as declared as long as you have, as long as you follow the rules, you know, there are loopholes, there are incentives, there's ways of restructuring it. There's ways of you know, people spend a lifetime doing this, but it is fascinating how many different you know, just like you say, you sell on day 364, you pay short-term cap gains, which are higher, you hold two days and you pay less. There's so many of these s- switches where you, you go all of a sudden from paying more to paying less or vice versa. That's right. And that's what a good accountant will help you do. I mean, it's the difference between tax optimization, which is legal, and tax evasion, which is illegal. And mm-hmm. so um, absolutely, you know, 
you know, saving your capital gains until they become long-term capital gains, that's tax optimization, 100% legal. Not paying the taxes, that's tax evasion. That's not legal. And, and crypto, of course, has a lot of folks doing both. And uh, the IRS are, is very interested in you know, finding some of the folks that are doing tax evasion uh, using the anonymity of crypto. So carry on. It is. So tell me, tell, tell me your, uh, the contrast from what you, so you're looking at compound years ago and you say, this is cool, but we can do it different or do it better. What, what did you see totally. in Ave or compound that sparked your excitement? Yeah. So we looked at this and we said, okay, this is very interesting. These folks have demonstrated that you can, let me share my screen again, if that's all right. You can make a smart contract that can do, in this case, over collateralized lending. And, you know, Compound today has $5 billion supplied into it, currently borrowed out $1.2 billion. So this is working and it's working at real size. It's not a perfect system. It is still evolving and undergoing improvements, but it does demonstrate that this kind of technology really can work. Now we said, look, the market for this kind of over collateralized lending is large, but it's not that large. The much larger market is if you can actually do un and under collateralized lending, where you could give someone a loan of 100 USDC, not because they gave you $120 of collateral, but because they gave you $60 of collateral, or maybe they gave you $0 of collateral, and you're just confident in their credit, in their income, and you're confident they're going to repay that loan. So that is where we developed the protocol TrueFi. So this is TrueFi. It's our protocol for un- and under-collateralized lending on the blockchain. And the idea is that using, we have actual portfolio managers that come onto the protocol, run credit strategies, do actual credit assessments, credit scoring with real reputable borrowers, and deploy tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars using their credit strategies and can achieve a really strong return, oftentimes with taking little or no collateral. And so it gives a lot more capital efficiency and ultimately a much higher rate of return to lenders that are putting capital into the protocol. So that's really what TrueFi is about. And to give you a sense of the numbers here, you know, TrueFi, the protocol launched about 18 months ago. It's originated, as you can see here, we just passed $1.65 billion of loans originated in just 18 months. So that's pretty good. We are looking to scale that up to the tens or even hundreds of billions in the coming years because lending is a huge world and there is a tremendous amount of growth if we can demonstrate that this technology really is a better way to do lending, which is what we think. And if you look at the kinds of returns that lenders on our uh, protocol get, so some of our largest pools, we have um, some DAO pools. So these are pools that are actually controlled by the, by the protocol um, and lend to major crypto borrowers. So here's just an example. You know, USDC is one of the largest stable coins in the world. This is a $189 million USDC pool. Right now, it is making 6.4% uh, APY. And we actually give out some TRU tokens. TRU is the governance token for the protocol. We give TRU tokens out to 
uh, the lenders in a lot of our different pools in order to incentivize lending and also to decentralize the governance of the protocol and put those TRU tokens into more users' hands. And so taking into account TRU tokens as well, this pool has an 8.55% APY. So I don't know what you are earning on your bank account today, but um, I am definitely not earning 8.55% on almost any investment uh, that people I have in my portfolio. Yeah, did banks still pay I, interest I, rates? <laughs> look, I'm, I'm not earning anything in my bank account. My stocks aren't doing well. My crypto's down. Everything's down. And the one thing that's been doing well is um, the capital I have in TrueFi. It's been earning a great rate, and TrueFi... Um, you know, it's originated $1.65 billion of loans. If we look at the analytics page, it's already have had $1.19 billion of loans repaid. That's all, you know, uncollateralized loans directly on the blockchain in stable coins like USDC, TrueUSD, and so on, directly to borrowers' Ethereum addresses, all being repaid so far with zero defaults. Zero defaults on uh, almost just a hair under $1.2 billion. So, this thing is actually working. It's at size. It's providing a great return to lenders when almost everything else in the world is not right now. Uh, and so we're very excited about it. And it looks great. Well designed. I think the, the product, just speaking purely from software user interface, when I was using it earlier, it just, it makes sense. It's easy, intuitive to figure out. And I think that makes a big difference. People, don't, people in crypto often de-emphasize that or don't emphasize it, and they'll talk about the technical capabilities. But for many people, most people, that's hugely important. Totally. Yes. So. We've got to make this stuff understandable, and we've got to make it easy to use, because we want to get beyond the crypto-native audience that we have today, folks that are comfortable just downloading MetaMask and potentially using some janky Web3 apps. And we need to be able to get this stuff into the mainstream. Because if we want to get from billions of dollars to tens to hundreds of billions of dollars, eventually to the trillions of dollars of lending that go on in this world, you know, if ultimately if DeFi wants to scale to those kinds of sizes and really make an impact on how finance works globally to make it more transparent, more efficient, more open, we're going to have to solve a lot of usability issues and a lot of education. So, yeah, we're cut out for us. Oh, I have some questions. Let me let me ask you. So, uh, why well, I also think that the under collateralized lending platform had to exist because you it, it just think about when you're in non Web three world. If I go to my bank and I want to take a loan and they ask me yeah. for a hundred and twenty percent of what I'm, I just it's a non starter for most people. It doesn't make taking sense. A lend, yeah. Uh, aside from trading, it's like loans inherently a concept of a loan is I give you something understanding I'm taking risk and then you pay me back more than what I gave you to pay for that risk. Uh, what, what's the surface area or what are the, the points of consideration that lenders have, uh, to factor into a person's ability to pay back this loan right now? And don't know if the answer is a credit score, but I want to talk about credit scores on chain, off chain, and what you think about that as well. Great question. So there's a lot there. So first of all, different DeFi protocols are targeting different points along the risk return curve. And there is an efficient frontier in 
the world of all investable products, you know, of everything from treasury bonds that could be the lower, lowest risk, but also lowest return assets, all the way to super risky crypto assets that could be very high risk, very high return, and everything in between. And an investor might reasonably want a diverse set of assets selected from many different points on this curve, or a whole bunch of assets just from one point, depending on their risk tolerance and what kind of growth they're looking for and what kind of losses they can tolerate. So one thing to note is that a protocol like TrueFi, because it is doing uh, un- and under-collateralized lending, it's going to generally be a little bit higher risk, higher return than something like Compound or Aave that requires 120%, sometimes 150% collateral. So, and, you know, we think it's a good financial product because we think that, you know, you're taking higher risk, but you're getting you're getting paid for that risk in terms of the rate. Mm-hmm. So just looking at the numbers today, at this exact moment, you can see that on Compound for stable coins, you're getting paid 0.77% to deposit USDC, 1.2% for DAI, which is another stable coin, 2.15% for Tether, a different stable coin, 1.7% for TreeUSD. So generally a range of, let's say, from 1% to 2% uh, for most of these stable coins. And if you look at other crypto assets like Ether or wrapped Bitcoin or some of the other ones here, it's oftentimes an even lower rate, sometimes very close to zero. So those are kind of the rates on Compound today. And these rates are, you know, the rates for stable coins are oftentimes better than you would make in your bank account. Maybe they're comparable to a high yield savings account, but they are not nearly as good as they could be because Compound is taking this collateral. And so borrowers just aren't willing to pay that much to, t- to take loans from Compound. If you look at the borrow APY over here, you know, to borrow USDC, today someone pays 2.2%. To borrow Tether, someone pays right now about 3.7%. And that reflects the fact that they have to put up collateral. So they're not willing to pay as much as if they could get a loan without putting up collateral. You go over to TrueFi, you can see today on USDC, so the same asset, you can make 6.41% instead of 0.77. So very significant difference. If you look at including the governance token rewards as well, 8.55%, the difference is even more significant. So this is, you know, sometimes five times, sometimes even more uh, additional uh, APY that you're getting from something like TrueFi compared to something like Compound. Um, and that reflects the fact that someone's willing to pay a lot more to get an uncollateralized loan than to get a collateralized loan. Now, of course, the issue is the protocol needs to manage risk. And so part of that has to do with bringing on portfolio managers that are doing a great job of selecting borrowers that they know are going to repay these loans or have the best possibility of repaying these loans. So um, these these portfolios span all different areas that we have on TrueFi. Um, I'll give you an example. We actually launched one just recently uh, with this group called Chorus that does lending in emerging markets. So this is Chorus is a team that has a lot of expert a lot of expertise in lending within emerging markets. And so if that's an asset class that you're interested in getting access to, you can put money into that portfolio. And we have a whole bunch of different portfolios that lend to different borrowers, have different strategies, and ultimately can give uh, lenders a diverse set of investment opportunities uh, that they may want in their portfolio. 
Hmm. Is it correct to describe this in a way like a angel list? And these would be the syndicates by contrast to Web2, where I'm backing a syndicate, I'm giving them uh, $10,000, they're making investment decisions for me. And then in your in your case here with True TrueFi, it's, it's Web3, so they're making loans in crypto. But is that roughly analogous? You know, that is actually a pretty good analogy. Um, what we're doing is a little bit like AngelList on the blockchain, except that instead of doing equity investments in startups, which is what AngelList focuses on, this is doing lending. Mm-hmm. But but yes, it's similar, and we and, and we do have portfolios on our protocol that are more similar to syndicates, and we have other ones that are more similar to, let's say, the Angelist funds, where you might be getting act, getting uh, access to a whole bunch of different uh, a whole bunch of different investments, um, just with you know depositing your capital into one portfolio. Mm. So it's a variety of different products, but I do think Angelist is a pretty good analogy for it. Yeah. Yeah, it almost, I mean, in a way, it feels like the mechanics for the issuance of the money and the return on that is instead of equity, it's money, you're paying back interest. It's debt, yeah. Right, debt. Uh, But even like the crowdfunding sites, if I'm giving, if I'm investing, maybe it's slightly different in the sense that a crowdfunding site like WeFunder, SeedInvest, those guys, they're they're screening the, the projects that are on there. They're screening the borrowers. Uh, you're making an investment directly. So I think the difference there is the individual consumers are making investment decisions, whereas in TrueFi's case, you're kind of aggregating that um, assessment into these professional in, uh, lenders, right? Um, yeah. So, so well, we actually have a couple of different offerings within TrueFi, depending on what you're looking for. Um but mo- you know, mostly our model is focused on you know you want to deposit some of your capital with a professional portfolio manager who knows a certain lending area really well and is going to be making really solid credit decisions. That's the core of our model. Mm-hmm. But we do also have things that look a little bit more like a syndicate deal, where um, let's say there might be a particular opportunity that you want to participate in. Here's an example. We recently ran a portfolio with Alameda Research where you can deploy capital here and you know there's only one borrower that you're getting exposure to, which is Alameda Research. And so you can think about this, about this as a little bit like a syndicated deal, a syndicated loan. And you know they ended up raising $54 million, which is a pretty good amount. And you know, fully it's that's performed really well. There's there's hasn't been any issues with that. And but it's you know, you're not getting diversified exposure to five or ten or twenty different borrowers. You're getting exposure to just one single borrower that you may be excited about. So we do have a we do have a couple of different models depending on what individual lenders are looking for. And is Alameda Research in this case, <clears throat> are they applying to be on TrueFi? And there's a process of application and internally you have a team that will uh, assess them and decide who gets in and who doesn't? So there is, yeah, they're applying saying, hey, we want to run a single borrower portfolio where we're the only borrower. We think that there's an audience of, of lenders that are excited to lend into that portfolio and deploy capital with us. And we want to we launch this on the protocol. And 
Uh, we are we we do have a team, a credit team on at our company, Trust Token, that does assess opportunities like that and figure out which ones are appropriate for our protocol. But we are, as you mentioned earlier, right now massively decentralizing every piece of our protocol, including that one. And so we are setting up within our DAO, within our decentralized autonomous organization that we're building, we are setting up committees to focus on these various areas, including committees to focus on questions like we just described about, hey, we have new borrowers that may want to come and join the protocol and maybe raise capital from the community. Do we want to do we want to make a recommendation for the community about what we think about this borrower? Are they really credit worthy? Are they someone that the protocol wants to be associated with? And so on. Now, Mike, I will say, you know, part of the core idea of our protocol and many other DeFi protocols is that fundamentally, this is open source technology that we want anyone to be able to use. We would like it to be the case that anyone can launch a lending portfolio on TrueFi with any set of lenders and borrowers and credit strategies and parameters and a completely open platform. But within that open platform, that, that open source technology that anyone can use, we also want to have one or more curated marketplaces where people can go and say, hey, I only want to see high quality lending opportunities that have been somewhat vetted and where I know I'm working with professional borrowers professional portfolio managers that are going to be making good credit decisions. And I still could lose money, but at least, you know, these are well-vetted folks where I'm, I can feel confident I'm making, you know, rational decisions and that these things aren't going to be scams that are going to run off with my money or do something crazy. So that's sort of how we see it. And so that is a tension that we and many other protocols face is how do you resolve, how do you resolve the tension between on the one hand being open and then on the other hand, providing vetted opportunities to your community and to your platform of lenders. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we're working on. We've got some some good ideas on it. And as we decentralize and we build out our DAO, that's one of the things that we are putting into the design of the whole system. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Do you think of it as a goal to have a, uh, I would think of it if I'm, if I'm in your shoes is you want to offer, you want to offer investors the spectrum of risk and you want to most clear, you want to build the tools that allow the borrowers to most clearly, uh, uh, represent the risk of that they're offering. So if I'm, you don't, you want to, you know, in other words, if somebody comes in and says, exactly. this is a very low risk investment, but meanwhile, there's something about it that makes it high risk. You want to extract that information and make that available so that there's not, ultimately people are, are always trying to, uh, usually slightly, but misrepresent the risk. They want to appear lower risk so they can get more money or at a lower rate. Then there's people who are just blatantly fraudulent who are saying i i you know they genuinely have no intention to repay that and i think that was the crash that we saw in the ico 2017 uh 
collapse was like there was just projects that were fake they were just there to you know take people's money uh there's a combination of 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 both of, yeah. of what you just described right projects that were were legit but were riskier than people expected and projects that were genuine fakes from the beginning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need to be able to handle both situations as a protocol how wide a spectrum is there now between the, t- the use cases for this money? Can I borrow money to uh, start a, a restaurant? Can I borrow money to uh, buy a house to, to start mm-hmm. another crypto? I mean, wh- how have you thought about the screening process for the types of use cases for people borrowing money? Right. So Mike, today, you could be a lender, you could deploy capital with many of the portfolios on our protocol, but you couldn't be a borrower. And the reason is because right now we only have portfolios that do B2B lending, only lending to businesses. And part of the reason for that is that doing credit scoring and even more so doing collections for consumers can be very difficult. You know, if you imagine, okay, we've deployed $1.65 billion in the last 18 months. If you try to deploy $100 million with consumers, you know, that could be, uh, what, like a hundred thousand loans of a thousand dollars each. And then you're going to have a ton of defaults among those hundred thousand loans, even if your default rate is low, just because the numbers are so big. And now you have to go chase down all these consumers to get your thousand dollars back or your five thousand dollars back. So that's why our protocol has focused exclusively to this point on B2B lending. Oftentimes, you know, even $100,000 is a very small loan for us. Um, most of the loans on our platform are a million dollars and up. So these are businesses that oftentimes have, you know, $10 million, $100 million, or even billion dollar balance sheets, have very significant revenues, and are, are borrowing, you know, sometimes, sometimes millions, sometimes tens of millions. Um, sometimes our largest loans can even be nine figures. And uh, that's really the focus that that B two B market for now. We might get into consumers at some point down the road, but uh, it is a somewhat different market, and it does have a lot of its own issues around credit scoring and collections. Yeah, you know, one interesting company that I, I studied a while back was um, uh, Tala Tala T A L A. Yes, yes, you familiar yes. with them? They Absolutely. do. Uh, yeah, micro lending. Totally. I think they mostly focus on uh, individuals starting businesses in Africa. I'm sure they're outside exactly. of that as well, but they um, they're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, where it's consumer and it's very small amounts of money. But they use they they use a couple tools that I thought were kind of interesting. One is they will connect to a user's contact book, so they'll say uh, import your friends, or import yeah. your contacts, and then if we find anyone in your contacts who has previously mm. scammed us. No, no go. It's like a immediate. Exactly. Decline. And so they use that. They, I'm sure they have other methods as well, but they start people low. They allow them to build some momentum, pay back the loan, take out another loan. And it's kind of interesting. Right. It's very interesting. I think that, you know, I think that that kind of thing is an exciting way to allow people, especially folks who might have no credit score and no credit history previously, to be able to take out small small loans and start building up a credit history and eventually be able to 
borrow a bunch of capital and really scale a business. Um, on the other hand, those companies did get some negative press for a while because some of them were using very aggressive tactics around collections. For example, some of those companies would collect users' address books, and then if you didn't repay a loan, they would start calling people. They start calling your friends and start bugging them about repaying the loan, which has uh, you know potentially some ethical issues. It's uh, you know, not necessarily a very friendly way to handle uh, you know collecting from someone. So there are questions like that, and and overall, the whole consumer lending space has a lot of complexities that we don't necessarily want to play in today. But I will say we we absolutely want to be working with companies like Tala that are handling that. We don't want to be in that business ourselves, but we could definitely see giving Tala or giving Branch, who's also in that area, or any of those companies, um, a loan from some of our portfolios. And we do have portfolios that deploy capital in emerging markets. And some of them are lending to companies that are then, you know, taking large loans. It could, you know, they might take a million dollar, $2 million, $5 million loan and splitting those up into, you know, lots and lots of little loans that they're making to either local consumers or local businesses. And then they're repaying this bulk B2B loan. So, mm. so our protocol still wants to stay in the bulk B2B lending business, but some of those, some of those borrowers may themselves be, be running consumer lending strategies. And we're, we're very okay with that. If this, if the, if the DAO, now that you have the DAO and you're moving quickly in a decentralized direction, yeah. if there was a vote that came up that said, we want a platform that can allow anybody to create a, a campaign to raise money for anything, mm. include video, just like I'm picturing a Kickstarter type experience where I can put up pictures and video mm. and content and I can put the amounts, I can put how I want to be rewarded. If people pushed for that, would that be, because I don't think that exists today. Uh, you know, we do have Kickstarter and some of these tools in the TradFi world. But do you think this is inevitability uh, that this will happen? And then they'll just be the companies or the, the protocols expertise, really value prop will be determining people's authentic risk. It's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of interesting ideas in there. Kickstarter for credit. Yeah. A lot of things that protocols like ours could potentially expand to as we grow. You know, ultimately, Mike, part of what's exciting about these protocols is that they really are community governed. And, you know, our protocol, TrueFi, is one of the only of the uncollateralized lending protocols to have full on-chain governance. So the smart contracts on the blockchain for the protocol are actually owned by governance contracts that do on-chain votes by TRU token holders for any update. And so a TRU token holder can propose any arbitrary update for, for the protocol. It is truly out of the company's hands. You know, I am, I am just a token holder. Uh, other folks, if you, if you deposited capital into the protocol and you farm some of the TRU tokens, then you're a token holder. And it's ultimately up to the token holders what direction they want to take the protocol in. I certainly have my ideas and I voice them within the community. But part of what's exciting about it is that Anyone who comes and has tokens or who participates and then earns tokens can literally participate in the governance of the protocol and can set what the future direction is. So 
there's a lot of great ideas out there. And Mike, if you've got ideas, if listeners to this episode have ideas for what we should be doing, please come engage with us. Join our Discord, join us on Twitter, come join us on our forum, you know, write up a proposal with your idea for for new lending portfolios, we should develop new new ways we can expand the protocol, you know, get engagement from the community, get people excited about it, and let's go. Let's get it built. Let's get it shipped. Mm. How these things happen. I know. I, I, I love it. Uh, when that happens, if there's a vote and there's a uh, decision made by the DAO to build a certain product or something, w- would this be yeah. kind of a fiduciary duty by the development team to build this or Mm. how do you see like i mean you could just decide not to build it uh tech like if if we're speaking purely technically right there isn't somebody has to literally spend time in a computer and build whatever the the community approves is that is that right or how do you think about the limits of the voting that's a very good question, and it's a question that many DAOs are facing. Yeah. What really are the powers of the DAO, and is a DAO able to compel companies in the ecosystem to do things that the DAO wants? So, Mike, what we're working on there is, you know, the governance contracts control the actual protocol contracts. And so... Any TRU token holder, if they have enough TRU tokens, can propose a vote, can actually make literal updates to the protocol itself via governance vote. Okay, so that's great. That That's the fundamentals. Now, getting stuff built, you know, if you have an idea but don't have the code, so you can't take a direct vote on the code, but you want something built, and you want to, let's say, vote on getting something built, and you need someone to actually build it, you can build it yourself, you can talk with your friends. But um, if you want the DAO to build something, what we're working on is setting up the DAO such that the DAO actually has its own war chest, its own independent funding, probably stable coin that it holds, and can employ its own devs and pay for its own development resources and product team and everything. And then, you know, the even the product development roadmap can really be determined by the DAO and token holders could vote like, hey, you know, right now we have 10 engineers, let's say. That get to that, that get employed by the DAO, and so this is what we're working on right now. It's zero engineers employed by the DAO, so we're, we're we're actually working on this. But let's say we had ten engineers employed by the DAO. TRU token holders could vote and say, "Hey, we actually don't think these engineers are doing a good job. We want to fire them. We're removing, we're revoking the budget for that, or we think they're doing a great job. We want to expand the engineering team, or we want to set different priorities." And you can truly have a DAO that controls its own destiny, has its own capital in smart contracts on chain, is paying people or paying companies for things it needs. And then it is it is in a much stronger position where even if my company, Trust Token, got shut down tomorrow because of some reason, that the DAO could be really strong and could survive. And that is what it means to be truly decentralized. You don't want to have too much dependence on any company that could get shut down. You want to have a decentralized protocol that is paying for everything that it needs and 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 has the resources that it needs to make stuff happen. Um, that's what we'd like to get. So mm-hmm. we're not 100% there yet. And we do have some key stuff in place, but there's a lot of stuff that we're working on now. And I will say, Mike, if if you know people that are interested in solving some of these interesting DAO problems, how you structure a DAO, how you set it up, how it's going to manage employing people, funding things, getting things built, and 
put through governance votes and shipped on chain. You know, those are problems we're thinking through right now. And we would love to have uh, any folks, you know, come engage with us, come work with us on this. We have a mm. very, very engaged community on Discord that talks about some of these exact problems. There's a ton of things to figure out. But in fact, even our even the name of our protocol, TrueFi, actually came from a community member who proposed it. Uh, oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. That's so, awesome. a, so a lot of a lot of what makes TrueFi TrueFi comes from the engagement from people in the TrueFi community. Yeah. Um, so what if what if village to make something like this? Let me ask you. There's a couple of questions that have come up in conversations. I'm curious to hear your response. Uh, one would be. Uh, what if the DAO voted to have a president that had veto power for any, mm. uh, any approved votes? So it's like, okay, Raphael, you are, we vote you, you are the president, you hold this power. Uh, we have, yeah. you, you can hold this, there's a four year term limit that we have to vote again. If you die, then we have like a backup person. There's like a series of yeah. commands. I tend to think the founding fathers. Like the time of being president. <laughs> 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 president of DeFi world, of true, true, uh-huh. true DeFi world. Um, exactly. To me, it seems like when the founding fathers created the constitution, they were, they were deeply considerate to the, uh, the psychology of society. You know, they like, yes. for instance, in our states, right. in, the, in our, we have 50 states in a union, the capitals in most states are not the most populous city because they understood mm. that when power is consolidated, that it has the ability to, um, disregard people outside of that outside of that bubble, and so yeah, I'm in. And the capital of our country, yeah, is not New York, right, or San Francisco or right. LA, right. And so I wonder if there's something to it. Most projects I talk to, they struggle with two things. One is, one is a direct realization that they struggle with the foundation. Typically, a, a foundation will be a bundle of money that's raised either on a token sale or on the initiation. Uh, of, of some previous investment round. So some, there's a bucket of money and that money is used to invest in developers building on the protocol. One challenge that I've heard is that the developers are disingenuous. They're not, they might apply to five, six, seven different protocols with like, here's one I'm going to build. Give me 500,000. And people are just taking the money. I've seen that from a lot of different folks. Um, and I want, that makes me think, okay, does that, What's the answer to that? I don't necessarily know the answer, but it's it's a pervasive problem in the industry. And the other I feel yeah. is this uh, this problem of like direct democracy, where it's like, wh- what if you totally. as the you know you're you you're more in touch with any, than anyone on this on this project? Should everyone have? Should you just be another token holder? Should you just have the votes, or should there be some sort of uh, preferred shares uh, or preferred token holders that have a greater voting capacity and I'll pause there. Clearly, I should have all the voting capacity, (laughs) Mike. I mean, well, you're building the wrong company if that's your goal. Exactly. No, Mike. Those are great questions, Um, and and uh, ones that we and other DAOs have been thinking about. So, um, the first one you mentioned about folks uh, who are you know potentially taking money from a DAO and not really delivering. Part of how we are thinking about the structure of the TrueFi DAO is that it really pays for results. Hmm. So having KPIs for each individual and each team within the DAO that really affect those uh, individuals' compensation. And 
you know, folks that could potentially earn a decent amount, but not a lot if they just perform all right. But if they really deliver on their metrics for the DAO, then they could earn mm. a whole bunch more. So that's one way that we are um, thinking about the design here. And we've got um, one guy, Ryan, on our team who's really uh, thinking through right now a lot of those KPIs and what they could look like for different teams. So very, very active work going on on that side. And then the second question you asked about direct democracy, you know, what, what many DAOs, including ours, are doing is having delegates. And delegates may even get paid for being delegates, but they're basically people where an average token holder can delegate their votes to a delegate that they believe in, who they think is going to accurately represent their views and desires in the community. And then that delegate can vote on behalf of those token holders. And the delegate may get paid for doing that. They might be paid based on how much they participate. They could be, they could be paid based on how much stake that they have delegated to them. And also, uh, if they don't perform well, and people feel like they're taking views that don't make sense, then ultimately, they'll, you know, retract their delegation and go work with someone else. So that's one idea. Mm-hmm. It's still being tested by our DAO and many other DAOs. And we may see other things emerge. We could see senates. We could see congresses. I know, I know some protocols that have like, you know, seven board seats essentially that get elected by token holders, and you have term limits. And then, you know, I've heard that some of those protocols have issues where, you know, most of the work gets is actually done by only two or three of those board members, and then the other four are kind of just freeloaders and might be even collecting a paycheck without delivering a lot of value. So. Sounds like our Congress. These, it might sound like, <laughs> but you know, Mike, I would say these are all fundamental issues for how you create organizations of people. Um, some things are new. We've got you know interesting new technical tools, interesting new problems to deal with, and some of them are not. And it's a little bit like the question of okay, how do you build an effective uh, governance structure for a country? How do you build an effective governance structure for a company? And as you can see, based on the way that the United States is run and the way a lot of other, um, you know, pretty legit countries are run today, that, uh, well, there aren't any easy answers. And it's something that our whole world has a lot to learn about. Hmm. How are you doing on time? Do you have to run? Um, no, I got a few more minutes if we... If we I, I, I want to get... The topics you want to cover? Yeah, I want to throw one more thing at you that I've just been pondering about and we'll come up in conversations. This this concept of, of credit. So we have a yeah. uh, like an oligopoly with TransUnion, Equifax, Experian that are credit bureaus that were yeah. started and effectively chosen by the government in the United States to be a repository for people's uh, credit history. And that is like whether mm. you're paying your debts on time, your payment history right. on loans, other things as well. It's a giant black box, which is one problem. And it's also been hacked. And we might be able to do a lot better. Yeah. A lot better on both of those things. And crypto. Wh- where are we in the crypto world today with this? Are there projects that you've seen? Uh, do you feel like there's a structural blocker that needs to be overcome? Great question. So, Mike, our focus as a protocol is not primarily on uh, direct credit scoring or credit data. We focus on having 
strong portfolio managers hmm. that understand a certain area within credit and can do strong underwriting and deploy capital really well. And that was what we think is gonna be the biggest value add for lenders that wanna deploy capital into our protocol with some of these portfolio managers. But the place that we plug into what you're describing about credit on the blockchain, which is something that we think is gonna be a huge area, there are a bunch of interesting companies working on it. The place where we plug into credit on the blockchain is we generate more credit data than possibly anyone else in the entire blockchain world. And what's interesting is this is completely open data. So if you look at our analytics page, app.trufi.io slash loans, you can see here every single loan that has ever been originated on the TrueFi platform, all $1.65 billion, and exactly uh, what Ethereum address it went to, and what amount, and what rate, and you know when it was repaid, all the data for the loan is right there. And in fact, you don't even have to trust me or our website. You can go to the actual Ethereum blockchain. You can run your own node if you want. And you can actually see on the blockchain these loans going out in stablecoin to the borrower's addresses without any collateral and then being repaid one month, two months, three months, and then six months later with interest. And that is serious amounts of real credit data that is all directly on the blockchain associated with the borrower's Ethereum address. And we do think that this kind of data generated by our protocol and by other lending protocols on the blockchain are going to be the foundation for an entire new credit system that will inform the lending of all kinds of protocols and businesses. So if you look at an example credit history on our protocol, so here's Alameda Research, they are one of the largest trading firms within crypto, extremely active on the TrueFi platform. They're also one of the lead investors from our previous round. And you can see here, every single loan that they've ever taken out from TrueFi, and you can see the, the history and the status of that. And you know this is a record that should give you a tremendous amount of confidence in them as a borrower. And you see like the number of loans they've repaid, what is it? like? Mm, 10, 15, almost 20 loans and totaling $348 million of repayments, including $9 million of interest and $112,000 of fees. So, you know, all of this history of successful loan repayments, completely public for anyone to see, to know this is a very legit borrower. And all of that can be used to inform on-chain credit scores and other kind of other kinds of on-chain credit assessment. So mm-hmm. it is an area that we think is extremely, extremely high potential. We are very actively watching and engaging in that space, even though the that kind of you know credit score on the blockchain is not necessarily the main focus of our protocol in particular. And that's all public data, right? What you have what you just showed all there. public yeah. you're seeing it on our website you can go to that same site right there and it's all public it's it's you don't even have to trust our site it's literally on the blockchain that those loans are going out and they're coming back so mm-hmm. that also means if you think about it from a borrower perspective well if you borrow from a traditional financial institution then you know you borrow a million dollars you pay it back with interest okay you haven't you might have done a little something for your credit score, but not a whole lot. If you borrow, borrow from DeFi, now 
that's something that's verifiable and transparent where any lender in the entire world can see that you have successfully repaid that loan and that you're building up a very real public credit history that anyone can examine and verify for themselves on the blockchain. That's very, that's very cool. That is essentially impossible in TradFi because you're always trusting someone else. You're trusting the credit union who's trusting the person who reported the information to the credit union. You're, there's a whole bunch of trusted intermediaries that are ultimately, you're both trusting them and you're paying fees to them too. And that just is creating a much less efficient system. So mm-hmm. we do think this is the foundation for something that's very exciting. And over time, it's probably gonna take years or maybe even decades, we think this is gonna change how all of credit, how ultimately all of finance is gonna work. Mm. Yeah, it, I, I love the way you explain it. Uh, to me, I just, I can... The, the clouds are sort of disappearing where I'm seeing there's a smart contract protocol that integrates and can pull in data from TrueFi, any other blockchain, any other protocol. It can pull it off chain exactly. from Experian, TransUnion. It has the capability to uh, import that with your approval. And it has the uh, permissions to connect to other sources like TrueFi one day launches the consumer uh, direct to consumer lending plat, the lending capability, <clears throat> and you can opt into like CreditFi, you know, and it's like, okay, what, what pieces of information do you want to give them? And the more you give them, the more visibility you give, the better your rates are. And it's like, I, it exactly. seems like the key, the fundamental pieces that this, th- that the solution has to include is integration of the off chain data as it is today. It ha- it, there's just so much in the in the TradFi world and the credit unions. You have to be able to import right. that. And then you have to be able to scrape or import data from other protocols that are being lent. And then you, thirdly, you need the ability to uh, approve the, the, the smart contract has the ability to approve the, the transport of your credit data to uh, loans that you want. Uh, to lenders that you you're considering and that has to be privately transmitted uh, you know you, you don't want your data to be just openly on the blockchain available for everyone although it depends what kind of data right because mm-hmm. some data like what i just showed you actually yeah that's you know, true that's alameda's true. borrowing history with a protocol is already completely public just as yeah. the the assets in alameda's ethereum wallet because they have an Ethereum wallet registered with the protocol, that's also completely public, right? So some things can be completely public, but completely agree. Other things, like certain off-chain data, it might be very private, and you may want to control very carefully who you share that with. Mm-hmm. So there, yeah, there's a whole mix of different kinds of data that's going to go into the system. Yeah, because once that happens, once once the reservoir is, is cracked, and you have people taking out loans from a, a smart contract credit protocol, then... It's like the momentum just builds on top of that. It, it, to me, it feels like that's, you know, we have NFTs, we have DeFi, we have CeFi, we have stable coins. It feels like the credit thing is just, it's like, that's that's a big thing that- uh, It's big. You know, it's a solve. I completely agree, right? The, so the, yeah, this is, a lot of people get to this point where the clouds clear and they start to see, okay, this is what it truly means to reinvent credit and finance and put it on the blockchain and what it would be like 
And I think what you're seeing, if we had a credit union on the blockchain and it's pulling in data from all these different sources, that data is getting consumed by mm. TrueFi and other protocols, and you can feed it more data to enhance your credit score, which further lowers your rate, but also increases the network effects because then the credit union has even more data about even more people. And that is that is absolutely where we see this going. And that's the, we're building, it's a, it's a big system that has many different pieces. We're building one piece of that system, but also time works on our side because as more and more lending and other transactions happen on the blockchain, more and more of the data is here instead of there. Mm. And so the, the moat that, that a lot of TradFi institutions have and a lot of credit unions have where there's a lot of silo data off chain, that moat is very large, but it is getting reduced week by week, month by month, as we start doing more and more stuff in DeFi and DeFi can leverage the data that's in DeFi as well as pulling in more data from off-chain and we get more and more going here. We're just spinning up this very powerful flywheel. And I do think that it is a one-way door because the technology here is fundamentally better. Mm. You know, DeFi and crypto, it's a fundamentally better way to move money around the world. It's a fundamentally better way to do financial transactions. All of us have that strong sense whether you've sent a bank wire or you've gotten a personal loan or a home loan or you've had to have someone check your credit score, all of us have the sense like, wow, this is kind of crappy. And when we're familiar with products like Google or Facebook and we're like, okay, you know, Google works 24 hours, unbelievably reliably, hmm. right? I can search for it on Facebook. If I want to post on Facebook, I can post on Facebook. It could be 2 a.m. on Saturday and I can post my cat photos on Facebook, but I can't send a bank wire at 2 a.m. on Saturday. Wait, hang on. Which is more important for how our society and how global finance works? Is it like the Fedwire system, which moves trillions and trillions of dollars and is the foundation of the global economy? Or is it like Facebook, which is a, a great social network and an important company? But like, like one of them works 24 hours and is very efficient you know, and reliable. Yeah. The other one, the other one, like, oh, well, hey, look, I live in San Diego. It's 322 right now. Mm -hmm. That means on the East Coast, it's 622. So all the banks are closed. So I can't do crap with my money. Why is that? (laughs) That's just, it's so crazy. And it just tells you, like, the fact that, the fact that we've gone all these decades and we have the internet and we have systems that are so fast and so efficient and can be so much more reliable and, and, and in DeFi, I could send you, I could send you a hundred million dollars or I could send you a millionth of a penny. And either way, it's going to arrive in 15 seconds in the next Ethereum block if I put in the gas to do that. Whereas, you know, with a bank wire, yeah, it's just, it's a whole different world. It's so much slower, so much less efficient. It's so difficult to build actual high quality, transparent systems. And so that is really what we're about. And, and my company and my protocol that I'm working on, it cannot do everything. You know, we can build one important building block here, which is how we're gonna be able to do lending on the blockchain. And we need people to build these other building blocks around it. Um, but when the whole thing comes together and we have that credit union, we have that off-chain data coming in, we have these credit scores, you know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to come together. But when it does, 
you know, it's going to be as easy as going and, you know, buying a product on Amazon. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole system is going to be so much more. And then we'll take it for granted. Than it used to be. <laughs> Hedonic adaptation. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then like everything, we'll take it for granted and we'll worry about the next thing, yeah. which is bothering us. Yeah. But that is the progress of history and the progress of technology. Just like how I assume, of course, I could easily live into my 70s or 80s and 90s, even though it was just recently that the average human lifespan was, you know, 30, yeah. right? So things really do improve over time, but also, yes, we do take it for granted. And I think that's yeah. part of being human. Well, yeah, you, we, as humans, we need problems. If we didn't have problems, I mean, be it'd be nice for a minute. It's like a vacation, but you can't stay, uh-huh. you can't live there. You can't live in a state with no problems. It's a good question. I guess, yeah, I guess there's an extent to which you can and you can't. I mean, like even, even the problems that we have, I think that you can either like, you can have fun with them and kind of enjoy the process of solving them, or you can like treat them as like real serious issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that oftentimes people are happier and make more progress in life when they take things a little bit more lightly and they see, okay, yes, you know, yes, we have these issues that are facing us as individuals and collectively as a civilization, but ultimately, you know, we, get the enjoyment of of individually and collectively triumphing over these things or failing mm-hmm. hopefully triumphing over these things yeah and you know get to see what happens in the future yeah that's very true yeah there's like degrees of suffering that we identify as problems you can't send a bank transfer now it's past five o'clock in the east coast that's a problem yeah. it's oh a, poor me you know, it's, it's so yeah. difficult to send a bank transfer yeah that's right but it's like okay if, if somebody if your house is on fire if you're facing imminent physical uh, pain that's the biggest problem exactly. you could possibly have and so you abstract backwards from that and say how much how much pain is are you uh, being how much pain is there by some technical inability that we're seeing and well that's the beauty of technology is that you know we're solving things you know sometimes we're solving things that are that are extremely painful you know if you're building the next cure for cancer mm. but sometimes we're solving things that are somewhat painful but have immense scale right like if you make the entire global financial system work better you know, if you make the the multi-trillion dollar global credit industry work better, then, you know, that has all kinds of consequences because that's a really big scale thing. You just helped our entire civilization work more efficiently. And, you know, that has cascading effects through everything. So we, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be where we were if we were in a society where everyone is just worrying about their home being on fire you know, or, or where they're going to get their next meal. We need to be able to, as a society, work on more and more abstract problems that can scale across more and more people, or we don't make any progress. And of course, we will always have, you know, basic needs to take care of as well. But hopefully we can over time, get, you know, fewer and fewer people have to worry about their basic needs, more and more people can worry about high scale, you know, large scale problems that can potentially level up what we're all doing. You know, I heard this, uh, it kind of reminds me of, I heard this uh, experiment once that was run where they timed the distance, they timed the amount of time it would take for a mouse to run down this tube. And they initially would time the mouse. They would just take how long it would take to run down. Then they starved the mouse Uh for a week. They were getting food and they put a piece of cheese on the other side of the tube and they measured how long it would Uh take. And then they put, 
uh, a cat urine behind the cheese, behind the mouse. So, but they found that when you put cat urine, so the, the mouse thinks that there's a cat behind them and you starve them and you put cheese in front of them, that's the fastest mouse. So it's like the problems that we're facing exactly. are motivating. You want to solve problems, but it, that's not, if you're only solving problems, it's, it can be kind of meaningless. It can be kind of, um, like the the end zone is just it's like okay great we solved the problems but then if there's cheese exactly. it's like this is there is any a, cheese yeah right I I view crypto as as like it's the problem and it's it's the it's the cat urine and the cheese because they uh-huh, the uh-huh. the cheese to me is the ability to create building blocks in a society that we don't know how they're going to be used but we know these are meaningful building blocks that can and will be used in some way but we don't we can't know the answer it's like the problem is is very predictable. When you solve a problem, you do it with a specific intent to get an end result. And you patch the hole in the boat, great, the boat doesn't leak anymore. Mm-hmm. But when you build building blocks creatively and you just put them out in the world, exactly. it's like, who knows? It's it's a little bit magical. It's a little bit adventurous. And I think that's the that's like the real draw that I feel towards crypto, frankly, the technology of it. Yeah, it is. You know, I've always thought about it as it's really powerful to build tools and to make them completely public for anyone to use. That's sometimes the highest leverage stuff and you don't know what they're going to do with it. And there's a certain amount of loss of control. People oftentimes want to control like I know exactly what the outcome is going to be, but that oftentimes limits the upside, even while it can also sometimes limit downside. You know, and there's something powerful about taking high quality tools and just giving them to the world and saying, here's a great thing, do what you will with it. And then, you know, one thing builds on another and all kinds of magic can happen there. Mm, Totally agree. Are are there uh, books or people, places that you subscribe to or follow that have served you well in life or inspired you? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, one book that really that really inspired me and that I really try to live by, um, there's this book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leaders. And it is basically about, um, it's about living consciously in the world, you know, about taking responsibility for your impact, not blaming others, living in curiosity, being willing to feel your feelings, you know, it's just a, sort of a, a philosophy on living that I've found to be really profound and have a lot of wisdom in it. So I've tried to bring a lot of that into my personal life and also my leadership within the company. Um, a Another one that, that impacted me a lot was reading this book, Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is sort of the Bible, in my opinion, on productivity. And now for like, five, six years, maybe more, maybe seven or eight years, actually, I've just been living that productivity system. And a lot of it is about, you know, having, having, creating systems that you really trust and that you review so you can take things out of your head, put them in your system and be maximally productive without having to worry about stuff all the time and track many things in your head, which is not really what brains are optimized for. So it's a, it's a great recipe for how to do that. Um, so I'd say those are two mm. that definitely impacted me a lot. And I would recommend to any of your listeners that are interested. Awesome. 
Rafael, it's been a lot of fun, man. I really enjoyed getting to know you, learning more about Trust Token, TrueFi, all the uh, everything you've been building. So uh, yeah, thanks so much, man, for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Mike. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.